Hi, I'm Harriet, a mental health professional and educator, and this is Dawn Breaks, the podcast all about finding hope and maybe also healing after reaching rock bottom. This week's amazing episode with Alan is a very personal story and it comes with a warning. In here, Alan and I are going to be sensitively exploring the topic of loss and the death of someone very close. This is a topic which can be difficult for so many people and it is really a personal journey for everyone in terms of their grief. What I would say to you is this is an incredibly inspirational story which is heartwarming right to the very end so do listen but if this is a subject topic that is difficult for you potentially listen with someone who can hold your hand or be there and support you and make sure that you've got time so that you can listen and you've got a little bit of time afterwards to get back to normal and be okay to get on with the rest of your day. I really hope you enjoy this super special episode as much as we did recording it. Welcome to this week's episode of Dawn Breaks and I am so happy to have Alan joining me today and he's going to be sharing a little bit about his story with us. So welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me Harriet. Oh you're so welcome and um, how are you today? How do we find you? Absolutely brilliant. Top of my game. Out first thing this morning, getting the exercise done, spending some time on me before I actually started work. So, yep, absolutely brilliant form and really excited about uh, having this chat today too. Yeah, me too. That's good. Lovely to find you in such a positive place as well today. So I know you know a little bit about how the podcast works, but what I like to do is to kind of follow in time order. So we start back at a time when things were really difficult for you and then we kind of move forward to a time that was a bit more hopeful and how that might have happened and then lead to where you are now. So I wonder if there is part of your story that you're comfortable to share with us about a time when you were feeling really low or that was really difficult for you. So I have to say that, I mean, I'm 48 now and the most difficult trying time of my life was through my daughter's life. Uh, My daughter, Rihanna, was born in June of 2000. Mm. And when she was six and a half, we finally got a diagnosis from Great Ormond Street that she actually had a very rare genetic disorder Mm. uh, called late infantile Batten's disease. Now, up up to that point, Rhiannon had suffered seizures and some regression in terms of her physical mobility and learning capability. Mm. But what Great Ormond Street told us was that the condition was terminal and incurable. So we we did everything we could, and Rhiannon regressed from what we saw as a normal, healthy sort of three or four year old to eventually being in a wheelchair with no voluntary muscle control, no speech, and she lost her sight as well. So I gave up work to look after her. Mum mum was a social worker. She earned more money than I did, so it made sense from a financial perspective. 
And so I walked away from my career in Everton and devoted myself to Rhiannon. Now, all of the, all of the books and the, the, the scientists and the specialists all said that we'd be lucky if Rhiannon made it to seven and a half. Right. Uh, the, the books said between eight and 12. And Rhiannon actually passed away in January 2014, and she was 13 and a half. That's incredible. So we had six, nearly seven years to prepare ourselves for Rhiannon's death. And it wasn't enough. No, I can't imagine I, any time would be enough knowing that that's no, going to happen. I, I, I don't think so. You know, we'd, we'd connected with so many other families across the globe whose children had the same condition as Rhiannon, oh. and they were losing their children at five, six, seven, eight, nine. So we were very lucky looking back now. We mm. were very lucky to be given the time we were with Rhiannon. Mm. But when Rhiannon passed away in January 2014, uh, Shauna and I, and that's my wife, we were destroyed, utterly, utterly devastated mm. because you can convince yourself that she'd, she'd lived that long past her expectations. I think part of us had cons convinced ourselves that she was just going to keep on going and she went downhill very, very suddenly uh, within a space of six weeks Um she got to the point where she passed away and we were just destroyed with grief. We were, we just couldn't imagine going on with life without her because she'd been central to our existence right. more so than each other had been. Mm, which is really important to think about that, you know, in terms of you described their giving up work and caring for Rhiannon full time and, and then that loss would have meant such a huge part of your life, you know, was changed and altered forever. It must have been devastating for the two of you. I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. It's, it's so hard to put into words, Harriet. And I think what hurts as well is as, as parents of a child with a disability and a, what, what turned out to be a terminal illness, mm. you focus so much on your child that not solely through the fault of the people around us through our own fault too is you lose contact with friends mm -hmm. and people fall away people that maybe mm. are upset and don't know how to deal with what they're seeing as what Rihanna went through as she regressed so after her funeral you know, everybody rallies round, but then over the space of the next month or two, people start falling away again. And they're, oh, if you ever need me, call. But you're that low, you're that down that you don't reach out. And so we just isolated ourselves and didn't give ourselves any way out. Mm, and it's, it is devastating to go through something like what you've been through and the loss that you've been through, but also so many people aren't gonna be able to relate to it because they haven't had the same experience as you. There are many people who will have some elements of being able to relate to it. But but like you say, it's really difficult when people say, if you need me call, because you, you may not be able to call. And in a way you need people to just check in with you if you're at a space that you can manage it, it's so difficult. How do you give people enough space when they're grieving, but also 
let them know that you're there. It, I can empathise with both sides and the sort of isolation on your side and also the just not knowing what to do, you know, and not knowing what to say because nobody can make it better for you. No, and that's the thing is, is that people, that they want to be able to say something or do something that will help. But I suppose when you lose your, your parents, you know, everybody will talk about, oh, they, they had a good innings or they've, mm. they've lived a full, yeah. they've lived a full life. But what, you know, when that's a child, it's, you are literally at a loss for words or vocabulary that has any meaning whatsoever. Of course, of course. And, and I think also people are so desperate not to say the wrong thing as well in, in wanting to get it right. And sometimes that means people don't speak. And actually what you need at that time maybe is, is people to say it, even if it's clunky and awkward and they're not quite sure, but it means something that someone's trying maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's that reaching out. But in the circumstances, I think we were just in such a, a bad way that we weren't even open to the people that tried to reach out to us as much mm. as we should have been like hindsight is a wonderful wonderful of thing course. and now I can look back and see the mm. process clearly from sort of start I won't say to finish because grief certainly is something that will be with us for the rest of our lives yeah. but what we have learned to do is focus on the the, the good mm. that came through Rhiannon's life and we, st we still have days her birthdays and the anniversary of her death where we'll just turn our phones off and just take the day to be with each other. But there's a mindfulness there. It's not just shutting the world out. It's just allowing ourselves to feel that hurt, to talk about Rhiannon and then just to get up the next day and move on again. But it, it took us a long, long mm. time. You know, Rhiannon's been gone seven years now mm. and it, it, it took us five and a half years before we actually started living again after her death i could imagine i what you just described there was so powerful because you spoke about giving yourself space to grieve on the days that you really need to and i think that's something we don't necessarily learn nobody teaches how to do that but there's something so important about having room to feel all those feelings and give yourself permission maybe like by turning your phone off and having time together with with Sean or with your wife where you have space to honor her life Rhiannon's life and and honor the grieving process that you're still going through because like you say it's not a it's not something that's going to end it's something that will change that grief journey over time and potentially sometimes be easier and sometimes be more difficult but it's really it's really powerful I think for someone who you know if anyone's listening to this and they're grieving themselves to kind of hear someone who's on that grief journey and has found space away something that they can that they are able to to do because you are further along than you were seven years ago when Rhiannon first passed away I can imagine there would have been a very long time afterwards of feeling very low I wonder if, you know, we were saying about hindsight earlier, you can describe a little bit of how that was. And I don't want to keep it too long for you, really, for you and, and how difficult this must be for you to speak about as well. But how, how was 
you know, how long was that period of real sort of devastation afterwards? And, and then what changed as it began to move a, a little bit? I would say that the, the first thing that changed for us, Rhiannon passed away on January the 8th, uh, 2014. The first thing that actually made us engage with the outside world again because we were just literally completely apathetic mm. and neither of us um, were employed at the time we were just not engaging with anybody and literally the blinds were shut the curtains were shut and we just existed mm. just eating when it was required and yeah. our date our, our daily routine was horrendous looking back on it mm. but the first thing that really got us to engage with the outside world was we we're actually approached by a member of Shauna's local church mm, okay. and every two years they uh, Shauna's Catholic every two years they run a pilgrimage to Lourdes in France mm -hmm. uh, which is huge millions of people go there every year but we were approached by them because um, a young mum, Kathleen, wanted to take her daughter, Shannon, to Lourdes because she was due to go for major surgery. Shannon was only two and a half at the time. She was due to go for major surgery and the surgeons were only giving her a 50-50 chance. Right. But if they didn't do the surgery, there was no chance. Right. Uh, right. This little girl was massively complex and so her mum wanted to take her over to Lourdes to pray for the strength to get through whatever may come. Mm. But she'd never travelled with Shannon before. Right. And one of the things that we did do throughout Rihanna's life was we travelled the world. Mm. Wheelchair, doesn't matter what amount of equipment was required, we travelled the world with Rihanna. That's incredible. And so they came to us asking us, would we meet this mum? Would we mm. talk to her? And so we did. And I think it was the first bright light in our existence from that January to the June was meeting this little girl. Um, because she was, she was massively physic physically complex, mm -hmm. but there was absolutely nothing wrong with her mental faculties. Right. And we could use everything that we'd learned with Rhiannon to yes. good effect. And right. it was the first time that we really saw that everything we'd been through everything we'd learned and everything we'd done could serve a purpose yes after yes. Rhiannon had gone mm -hmm. yes and we ended up actually traveling and going to Lourdes as helpers on that trip That's so amazing. that we could support her mum support Shannon and help the others because a lot of elderly people would have gone as well right. and you know, right. Shona and I were both qualified first aiders and mm -hmm. it was the first awakening for us in that everything we'd been through, everything we'd learned could still give us a purpose. Right. And we hadn't had any to that point. I, I really, I love what you said there because you began to sort of see a glimmer of hope. You described it as the first bright light in, in that little girl when you met her and, and, there's something about the possibility that there might be something of purpose and value and hope after terrible loss and terrible grief. And it, and maybe it's not 
hope yet, but there's a possibility, you know, which is something that maybe um, begins to shift how you're feeling. And like you say, being able to put all of those skills and abilities that you learn specifically to support your daughter and be able to put them to good use, to purpose, to value, which gives you a reason to get up, you know, a reason to engage with the world because you have something that can support other people, which is amazing. And especially now knowing what you do now, which we'll get onto later, it's really beautiful to see that there could be purpose in the grief, purpose in the devastation, but it was just obviously not the right time until you'd had a little bit of space to grieve for you to see it. So what happened from this point? You'd had a, a glimmer of hope and you'd began to support this mother and her daughter. And what happened from then? So, I mean, we came back from Lourdes and we, we fell back into that negative routine. Mm. Um, but I don't think the fall was as great as it had been previously. Okay. We, we hadn't gone as deeply into depression and isolation as we had um mm. life still wasn't great for us we still moved from day to day without any real purpose or meaning but there were these moments that came through engaging with um, Shannon and her family and there were wee bright spots that with our own family and birthdays and things yeah. and that we started to, and it was a really, really slow process over the mm. next sort of two years. And I'd say two years after Rhiannon's death, the financial pressure hit. Mm-hmm. And so Shauna's health had taken a downturn. And I think we, we balanced each other. We were sort of both ends of a seesaw because I, I was very, very bad immediately after Rihanna's death for those right. six months. Right. Um, I was suffering from massive depression. Mm. And as I slowly came around from it, Shauna's then started to, to set in. And we were both worried that we would never actually be happy again. I think that was our biggest thing is how can we, ever actually be happy again right. knowing that our daughter's not with us right. and had died yeah it takes immense strength as well to even begin to want to think about that and how you yes. how you continue after after losing her yeah. so the financial incentive i mean was that one of us had to go back to work and of at course. that point i was more capable and, and that's something i think i mean we're, we're very very lucky and we are grateful that we have sort of the benefit system that we have, that so we mm. had benefits to support us with Rhiannon's life. But obviously when you have your sort of your carer's allowance, your disability mm. allowance, when that person dies, you, you then have nothing. Right. So I had to go back to work. And that was nearly nine months of actually looking for a job. Gosh, okay. And that really got me back on a downward slope again because yeah. you get – rejection after rejection mm. I think I had something like 30 interviews before I eventually got a job and you're it's almost like your self-esteem can't take the hit when you're just recovering or not even recovering in beginning to function after going through a huge trauma yeah I mean rationally I knew that I had a 
10-year career break. Mm. You know, I knew that I wouldn't be that attractive to employers. Mm. I knew that I had to really work on my, you know, CV. And yeah. the, the, first few in, the first few interviews, I was like, that's okay. It's practice, getting back into the swing mm. of things. But then after maybe 10, 15 interviews, 20 interviews, you know, the bills are mounting up. There's, yeah. The pressure was enormous. And, and then but when you get to that mental state, you're still, you know, you go into these interviews and you're not giving your best. Yeah, of course not. Because how can you? There's so many things, so much pressure on you. Sometimes the need to get th- something right or the need for it to be successful actually undermines us because of the amount of pressure we're then under. It must have been so, so difficult, so difficult for you. I eventually got my break in September mm-hmm. um, and went back into work I'd done previously, which was call center management. Okay. And three months of that and I was ready to quit. Oh, uh, yeah. I just felt, I just felt, I just could not cope. Thank God I had a very understanding um, supervising manager that mm-hmm. um, he moved me into a different part of the works and things started to get easier then. Good. But even then, right up until 2019, Sean and I, we, we painted a smile on. And from that point when I was back in work, sort of the financial pressures eased again. Mm. Um, but we still hadn't found that happiness, that real purpose. Yeah, yeah. But by that point, other people's expectations is that, oh, you should have got over it by now. Right. And... How do you manage that? How do you manage when people are like, well, yeah, but that was a long time ago now. That's so difficult. I, I mean, I, I don't even expect you to answer that question. I'm just kind of putting it out there. It's, it is so hard because it's, I, someone described to me once about grief being like a big black circle that when it initially happens, it completely takes over everything and swallows you up. And then as time goes on, it gets smaller, but it's always, it's ever present you know, it's still there and it doesn't disappear. And I, it very much related to me and the grief, a loss that I was going through at the time. I wonder, you know, we've spoken about and how incredible Rhiannon was previous to the podcast. You and I have had a conversation about that story and, and, and and she's always going to be a part of your life. I think people understand that, but also how can, how can people get better, you know, from someone who's experienced that grief how can people get better at understanding? Do they, you know, should it always be in someone's mind that it could be a bad day for you? Or do you think it's easier if they just come to you neutrally and see where you are? I think one of the things that people are afraid to do is they're afraid to talk to you about mm. the person who's passed away. They're, you know, people are afraid to talk to us about Rhiannon because they're worried that they're going to remind you of your grief and your loss. Mm. But they're actually reminding you of the fact that your child lived or your parent lived or whoever you've lost. Mm. And I think, I think if more people talked and were more open, Mm. you know, I mean, to expect somebody to be aware every day of the state of another person's sort of mental or emotional well-being is is unrealistic Mm. but i mean 
know, what I teach myself is that you should know certainly the people you're working with. You should mm. know them to a degree where you can have that sort of peripheral awareness that if something's different, that you can approach them and say, is everything okay today? Yeah, yeah. Is that and you don't need to say, are you having a bad day? No. Uh, just th that simple, is everything okay? Yeah. Um, and that leaves it open for the, mm. sorry, that, no, no, that, leaves, no, that, that leaves it open for the person to decide what they're going to share with you. Yeah. I think there's such a, a, a difficult thing in, certainly in our cultures that, we people will say how are you today and and you'll naturally say I'm fine you know you won't necessarily elaborate and open up and it's something that we've maybe learned it's a learned behavior maybe something we've learned to do and sometimes that is putting in a boundary that you do, you're not ready to go there you don't want to go there today but sometimes it you know it genuinely is an opportunity to say you know I don't want to talk about it but actually it's I'm not having a great day today I might come and find you later for a chat you know and then someone knows to give you lots of support and and kindness maybe compassion but without needing to find out what exactly is going on thank you I know I've just asked you such a difficult question and, and also I'm so grateful to you for being so honest about a subject that is so raw and is so difficult you know people do find really difficult to talk to and 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 I feel that this would be so supportive to other people who are experiencing a loss such as, as, as you have and, and just helping those around them to really support them in the way that we really want to support people who are having a really difficult time, but often don't know how or don't have the, the tools or the skills or the words. But sometimes, you know, it is, yeah, just about saying, is everything okay today? And that's, that's enough. Mm. so we've moved away from what you were you were telling us but you spoke about being at the call center and, and it becoming unbearable after a few months and then you were able to move to a, a different part of the business and then what happened after that so we, we settled back down into into a routine and shauna went back to work uh part-time um, Shauna was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Oh, I'm sorry. And, you know, we made the decision that, you know, it, it wasn't in her best interest to go back to work full time. Mm -hmm. So um, we looked at our finances and thought, well, part time's absolutely fine. So she went back to work part time, which I, I think she needed as well for her own emotional well being and mental mm. well being was to have something else to focus on. Mm. Um, shortly after Shauna went back to work and Shauna went back to work in the April so this would be 2000 trying to get my dates right now oh, well, it's okay. so this, yeah this will be around 2000 yeah I think 2017 April 2017 Shauna went back to work and in July of that year Shauna's dad was diagnosed with lung cancer gosh we didn't know how we were going uh, to cope with that. Um, right. Shauna was initially very, very worried, uh, mm. as was I, mm. but we'd already experienced the worst possible loss that, in our opinion, a human being can experience, which is yeah. the death of their child. Yeah. And that's not to say that the journey with Shauna's dad uh, and his family was easy. 
No. But the strength that we'd learnt through dealing with everything that Rhiannon went through and then in the intervening years after her death where we'd slowly sort of picked ourselves back together again really got us through that and we were able to start to take a much more positive supporting attitude and Mm. part of the thing that changed was that we both recognized that we needed to start working on ourselves and and start spending time focused on us as a couple Mm. and each other as individuals Mm. so we started to look at a lot of mindset gurus you know, we're looking at YouTube videos of the likes of Tony Robbins, mm. Jay Shetty, mm. um, Bob Proctor. Mm. And we started to spend time, and we do that to this day now. And I think that's where we finally began to live again, mm. was that in started to live for ourselves. We weren't living to help Shannon and her mommy, even though we still do that to this day. We love Aww, it. That's um, amazing. We're part of her bubble so that um, if she needs respite, she'll, she can come to us. That's amazing. Um, and Shona's dad has been gone now these last two years. I'm sorry. But it's still, you know, we still talk about Rhiannon and we still talk about Joe and we can do that without pain. Yeah. If, you know, yeah. We can speak about them positively and now we speak about everything that's, they bring to us you know and it's become a source it's become a source of joy you know you can speak about them and remember the the positive things that made you happy there's something you described there about your your deepest pain which is I agree with you the worst that you can imagine going through becoming your greatest strength so your greatest pain actually becoming this strength that you have inside that means that you know that you've been through the worst possible thing and so then you have the ability to to manage even though you're not sure how in another difficult scenario that you know you can because you've been through this thing that was really really difficult and then that's led you forward as well to all of these kind of inspirational teachers from different places and finding room for just you and you as a couple but you as individuals as well yeah I think it's Rhiannon's death has become it's like a yardstick for me now is if if I'm doing something and I think to myself is this worse than holding Rhiannon in my arms and telling her it's okay to let go because that's what happened. Rhiannon wow. died in our arms. Mm. Rhiannon died in our arms. And we were very blessed. We had no machinery, no tubes or cables or anything. Yeah. And Rhiannon just fell asleep in her arms. But we told her it's okay to let go. Yeah. And now I look back on that moment and how peaceful it was. And I ask myself, is what I'm about to do any harder than what I did for Rhiannon? Mm. And invariably the answer is no. Yeah. So then I know I can do it. Whatever it is, I know I can do it. Whatever life throws at you, you you know you have the capacity for it because you've you've looked at, at the, the the darkest possible time, the darkest possible moment and and you survived it even though we never know at the time whether we can survive the pain, the emotional pain 
but from what you're saying, that's incredible. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to speak about your story and not feel the emotion myself, actually, in terms of how yeah. just, you know, what you've been through is, in, is, is an incredible story. I'm, I'm sort of also conscious to talk about the things that brought you hope. You know, if someone is in a really difficult scenario like you and Sean have found yourself in and you've mentioned a few things and I wonder if you wanted to talk more about those or if there were other things that you wanted to speak about you mentioned already about the value and the purpose of supporting other people who are going through really difficult things which I think is huge and transformational for lots of people and you spoke about seeking out personal development for yourself through other people's knowledge and, and 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 gurus you know like you mentioned Tony Robbins and, and Bob Proctor and other really famous personal development teachers was there anything else as well or do you want to tell us a little bit more about each of those because I imagine they were really important yeah I think it was that what you say is right we we've been through the absolute lowest point of our life and we have survived and we've taken mm. those lessons and they now literally enshrine what we do day to day um both shauna and i have now walked away from our sort of salary jobs we're both mm. self-employed mm. shauna's a life coach that she right. deals specifically with sort of mindset mm-hmm. Uh, and helping people identify and achieve their goals. I've set up my own company, teaching managers to be better people, basically. Right. It's, it's literally leading through emotional intelligence. And that means being more aware of your staff, mm. being a better human being, which very often as a manager, you can lose track of the human element. Because uh, you especially have yeah, you've got pressures, you've got targets to achieve. Mm. And especially in the remote working environment, which so many people have shifted to, and according to the industry, are going to continue to shift to remote mm. working. It's very easy to get disconnected. Absolutely. But looking back on the things, I mean, Sean and I both have a very strong faith. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say that we go to church or chapel every day, but our, our faith has helped us Mm. and faith isn't necessarily for everyone but it doesn't necessarily have to be faith in a a greater power Mm. it can be faith in yourself Mm. it can be faith in something you've read or something you've seen on a youtube video but faith doesn't necessarily have to be religious is is what i'm trying to say but Mm. Having that faith, and I think for us it was really important that we we came to the understanding after that trip to Lourdes that Rhiannon's life hadn't been in vain and that she had actually taught us a staggering skill set, an enormous amount. Um, One of the words you, one of the, it was, it was a blessing. One Mm. of the words you used earlier on, which is so powerful, but it's almost taboo in business, is compassion. Mm. Mm. And that is something that Rhiannon taught us. She taught us to love unconditionally. She taught us an inordinate amount of patience uh, and self-sacrifice and the merit of that. 
And it was only through that real spark, that, that trip to Lourdes, that we re- began to realize that. And the realization was years in the coming, but that's, that's really the beginning, realizing so many of us live a life without purpose. Mm. We, we go to work, we do jobs we hate yeah. to, to, to earn the money to pay the bills that we don't necessarily need them all. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying everybody go away and live the good life and farm out of their gardens. <laughs> yeah, but, no. But we give, you know, we give so much time and energy to worry and stress and anxiety and things mm-hmm. that we have no control. Yes. Imagine what our lives would be like if we gave that energy to things that actually make us happy. Right. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I really do. I think we have the capacity to focus on things which really bring us joy and benefit us and make us happy. Or we have the capacity to focus on the things that we have no control over, which ultimately doesn't bring us joy. And it's, and it is a choice and it's not an easy choice. It's not to say you can wake up and switch on to your joy. You know, we sometimes have to work hard at it to get to it. And not every day is is an easy day. And some days are particularly difficult for for specific reasons. But I completely agree with what you said there, that it is a choice in terms of focus. Where do you want to focus your attention? And understandably, utterly understandably, after Rhiannon's death, you, you wouldn't even have thought about where your focus was. You were just functioning. You were just getting through the days and weeks and months. But eventually there became a time when you realized that you could maybe there could maybe be a glimmer of hope and you could maybe focus on some things that really matter to you and actually you've already got there I normally sort of take people through like where it's led them to now but you've already got there and it's no surprise that your pain has become your purpose your your most difficult experience has become the thing that you then sort of teach from and support other people with so Tell us a little bit about the work that you do now in a bit of detail, because you sort of touched on it there. But I think actually there are lots of people who'd love to know a little bit more about how it works and, and what it is that you do. So I, I started as I qualified as a mental health first aider for my for the company I was working with. We have a large number of employees who are late teens, early 20s. And the amount of sort of stress and anxiety that these people go through day to day and the issues that they deal with, um, I'm talking everything from uh, drug addiction to alcohol addiction to mm. domestic abuse and things like that that have, they don't disclose and they just let build up and build up. And I was starting to get people coming to me saying, I, I can't talk to my manager. Can I, can I have a chat? Mm. And through the strength that I developed over the years with Rhiannon, you know, and the training I'd received, I took that on. And I began to see that a lot of the managers around me weren't really managing people. They were managing numbers and spreadsheets and statistics. So I started studying myself. I started reading uh, a lot of books around emotional intelligence and mm-hmm. leadership and things like that and I was I thought well this is really needed 
And right. th this was pre th this was pre pandemic. I thought, you know, industry can't carry on putting employees through this grinding mill almost because mm -hmm. um, you know you, you see attrition rates go through the roof if you look at the office of Nas national statistics the ons if you look at their reports on absence in the labor market uh, absence related to mental health and emotional well-being in 2018 was the highest it's been since they've started recording it and right. the leap from year to year to year is staggering mm -hmm. Now, they haven't produced any reports since the 2018 figures because in the last year they've been focusing solely on the pandemic. Mm. But you can only imagine carrying those figures forward, what state we're in at the moment. So I gave my notice and set up a company called Dragonfly Leadership. And I offer one-to-one -one coaching with executives and senior level management. And I also am happy enough to go into small businesses and schools and teach their senior leaders about managing with compassion. Mm -hmm. and, and that's essentially, you know, to be an emotionally intelligent leader, you must have empathy. You have to be able to put yourselves into the feet of your staff, right. into their shoes. And the first training session I actually did was for Rhiannon's school. Um, I'm actually chair of the board of governors for her school. Right. Uh, and I, I see that as service and giving back for the years that they looked after Rhiannon and, and mm -hmm. kept her engaged. Mm -hmm. and, and I see that as paying back. So whenever I get any new training or I have a new program, the school gets it for free because I can never repay what they did for my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, and that is that, that is part of our philosophy as well is is in giving back. You know, what can we do to help people? Mm. So basically, I would go into a business and say, well, what are you doing for your staff? What's your mindset here? What's the company's culture? Mm -hmm. Do you have a well-being culture? Do you have a well-being policy? <laughs> right. Because what you find is a lot of certainly small and maybe medium enterprises, uh, they don't have the budget no. to run these, you know, really expensive training programs. They, they don't have the knowledge. And sometimes if I can go into a company and talk to the senior management or even some one-on-one -on -one coaching with the owner, if it's a small business or mm. an executive, and talk them through what an emotionally intelligent leader looks like. And that is somebody that is self-aware of their own emotions, somebody that can regulate their own emotions, which is something I've learned through the journey of Rhiannon's grief. Mm. I've become more aware of what I feel in each moment and how to allow myself to feel that without mm. necessarily carrying that on to others. Yeah. So I know if I'm in a bad mood, you know, if, if something bad happens to me, I may have a hissy fit and jump up and down, but that's in the moment then. You let it go then. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't um, you know, need to be held on to. No, because if, if you hold on to that feeling, then that feeling becomes a mood and that mood can dictate the course of your entire day. Right. It's a ripple effect, and isn't it? Mm. It's a ripple effect, and then that knocks on to your, your employees, your staff as well, or your teams, your peers, your colleagues. 
and then everybody starts tiptoeing around. So yeah, it, it's like dropping a pebble in a pond. You know, those ripples spread out. Being aware of that and being able to regulate that, you know, that's really, really important. And it, it's an insight that I've lived through and I can look back and said, well, I've spent nearly five years not doing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you're now, you now know exactly how, like, you, you, you know, you're very aware because of that experience yeah. of having to do it on such a deep yeah. and profound level. But I'm okay with that and because I can see where it's brought me to today. And, you know, anybody that's at the bottom of that well at the moment, I mean, one of the best analogies of grief that I, I've personally come across is it's like being in the water at sea is the waves are coming at you from every direction initially. Everything is just a struggle just to keep your head above water. Mm-hmm. But, but eventually the waves slow down. They're, they're not these huge, big tsunamis, and they, the waves get smaller. You still get the occasional big one, which will mm-hmm. knock you off balance. But if you're in that water and if you have something to cling to, if you can find one thing, Mm. whilst you're in the depths of that grief to hold on to be it a person be it an activity be it a habit you know whether it's i'm going to go for a walk every day it doesn't matter how bad i'm feeling i'm going to leave the house and i'm going to walk every day or whether it's i'm going to i'm going to watch a video or i'm going to find one thing today that i can be grateful for Mm -hmm. if you can find one thing to cling to it does get easier you will still have your bad days. And seven years down the road, Sean and I still have bad days. But it's okay to allow yourself to feel them and to talk about them. And I think one of the reasons I was so excited to be asked to come on and chat to you today, Harriet, yeah. was you, you, you spoke about our culture and our conditioning. And Ooh. there is something that is still to this day and age taboo about a man talking about his feelings. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm it's, so glad you've uh, spoken about this. Mm. Man up is still a phrase that I hear and I, I just die inside whenever I hear it because mm. it doesn't belong. You know, yeah. stiff up a lip, man up. Yeah. They, yeah. they don't belong in today's society. Yeah. You know, no, I and, couldn't agree with you more about that. You know, certainly in, in our locality here in Northern Ireland, I mean, the suicide rate for young men aged between 18 and 25 is three times higher than any other age or sex group because they won't talk because it's not part of the culture. Right. And that's shocking that we, unconsciously, but it has developed, you know, and then becomes conscious. At some point you become aware of the way that you think and the way you might um, perceive or judge someone and and that's when you can choose to do differently when you become aware of your prejudice because we none of us can avoid the prejudice that we grow up with we grow up around cultures and environments and families and ethnicities and different backgrounds but as soon as you become aware as soon as you're aware of the fact that you know that you come from this particular background and this ethnicity that you can then can have space to give room and be humble and want to learn about other people's experiences because there's something so powerful in learning and being curious and understanding and stepping into other people's shoes which brings us right back to what you were speaking about earlier about stepping into other people's shoes as a manager 
but yeah for young men the pressure is still there and it's not good enough you know we need to do better we must do better at supporting young men where does it ever become appropriate in a in a boy's life in a young man's life to suddenly go from being a young boy who might need a cuddle from his mum or his dad or his sister or whoever to then suddenly not being able to express any of that it's not healthy and it's not okay and and no wonder it's so difficult and detrimental to so many young men and and you're absolutely right the statistics show it you know and it is something that that we we need to focus on to give young men and all men as much support to to express themselves and express their emotions because it's what we're made of you know our feelings it's it's who we are Absolutely, absolutely. And it's part of the reason I do what I do is to make you know, employers, better employers, to be more aware of the, what their staff are going through. Mm. You know, it, it's been very timely with the pandemic, but pandemic or not, you know, yeah. our employers, they need to up their game. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not okay to, um, to sit back in a, in a situation where you're like we're just doing the same as we've always done because that isn't enough anymore policies do need to change environments do need to change and like you say employers need to be proactive about that change rather than just letting it be what it's going to be which is inherently risky you know to just let things be at times when actually we we know better and we can be more directive about supporting people and having an environment of of openness absolutely Absolutely. I mean, you spend so much of your time at work mm. that there's there's a degree of responsibility, which I think a lot of employees just haven't taken up on. Mm. I, I think they will. And I think mm. in some regards, this pandemic has raised the it's awareness okay. yes. of mental and emotional well-being Absolutely. to its mm. highest point. It's been in decades, if mm. ever, I think, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And though none of us would have wished for the pandemic to happen, of course not. It's been incredibly difficult on many, many people um, for a lot of different reasons. I do think that there's one really positive outcome, and there are a number of positive outcomes, but one really positive outcome is that people are coming out of this like so aware of the mental health implications. And we've obviously understandably the governments and uh, the health services have channeled everything into looking after our physical health during this pandemic but actually you know the the crisis that's now happening is that is the mental support the mental health of, of people really struggling in isolation and being separated from loved ones and and it's really hard you know it, this isn't the time to man up <laughs> I hate that phrase. Thank you for bringing it up because it's really important to talk about. I, this isn't the time to have a stiff upper lip. This is the time to say, I'm finding this hard. And if, and if you are, that is totally, totally okay. And there is space for that. And there are people who will support you. You know, so many incredible people working hard to support people with their mental health. And, and, and increasingly, there are more spaces for men as well. Um, but it's something I'm really passionate about. So I'm so, so grateful to you because I feel like you have shared such a incredible story of beauty and raw pain and real challenge, but also one of hope, 
one of hope, which is exactly what I'm looking for and exactly what I'm hoping to share with people is, is that there is life after the worst possible pain. There is hope and it may not come straight away and it may be a long time and it may be really difficult to find, but it is there and we as humans have such capacity for regeneration. We have such capacity to come back you know, from come back fighting from the most difficult times. It, we are like, you know, the phoenix bird that rises from the ashes because we, you know, we have this capacity to begin again, even though we've gone through something really difficult and even though our experiences were the worst they could be, we now have that inner strength because of them that makes us who we are. And and I, I'm completely honoured that you've shared your journey with us because it is such an incredible one. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for on, on multiple levels. But, but yeah, very much specifically for, for that, I feel that people will have got so much from it. So thank you. You're very, very welcome. It fills me with pride and joy to speak of Rhiannon's life and her death now because she's given so much and by sharing her story, I'm sharing her legacy. Thank you. Yeah. And what a legacy. What a legacy. Oh, thank you so much. Is there any last thoughts, last words, anything that you felt like you'd wanted to share and haven't been able to? And it's absolutely fine if there isn't. I'd just like to give you a bit of room at the end if there's anything else you feel you want to say. I mean, the only thing I would say is to whoever's suffering at the moment from whatever you're suffering, be gentle with yourself and be patient with yourself. It took Shauna and I five and a half years before we were in a position where we could look back and be grateful for what we've been given and the time we've been given in Rihanna's life. So no matter what you're going through at the moment, allow yourself to feel it. Be gentle with yourself. Don't be harsh on yourself and just give yourself time eventually it will come thank you gentleness compassion kindness yeah absolutely love it thank you so so much i really appreciate it wow what an incredible story i'm almost at a loss about what to say because i feel as if we said so much in that amazing episode with alan i'm so grateful to him for the bravery he's shown by sharing his story and for the message that he had to share with everybody about the fact that everybody has mental health men and women and we should be able to speak about it and talk about it and also for him sharing his incredible journey with his daughter and his wife and how difficult that has been, but also how that great, great pain has been able to be turned into something of purpose. If you know someone who would really benefit from listening to this, please share it with them. I think there is so much hope and potentially joy to be found in this story, which I hope will bring support to others who need it. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you've been listening to, please leave us a review and let me know what you thought and what you enjoyed, what you'd like to hear more of. And you can also follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app so you get regular updates about new episodes which are released every Friday. Otherwise, take really good care and you'll hear from me soon.